Good morning. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Western Hemisphere, Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues will come to order. It's my pleasure to welcome two distinguished panels of witnesses for this hearing on the Ninth Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. I want to thank Ranking Member Senator Rubio for his dedication to advancing American interests and values in the Western Hemisphere throughout his career. I'm proud of the work we've done on Latin American Caribbean issues during our time together in the Senate and believe there's so much more that can and should be done. Um, I've long argued that our sustained engagement in Latin America is, our is in our national interest. The U.S. and countries throughout Latin America share close ties. Our collective prosperity and security are closely intertwined. Each time I've traveled to the region and when I lived in the region, I've seen and heard firsthand how countries want us more engaged, so I'm pleased to be able to hold this hearing focused on the biggest event uh, for the region. Recent coverage of the Summit of the Americas has been somewhat critical, focusing on who's been invited or who's attending. But despite those critiques, I believe that the U.S. hosting the event is a welcome opportunity because the summit is an important time for the administration to outline a clear vision for the hemisphere, one that speaks to the broad and collective challenges we face together, and for us to champion the freedom that citizens across the region are yearning for. I'm glad that President Trump is scheduled to lead the U.S. President Biden is scheduled to lead the U.S. delegation to the summit, especially after President Trump chose not to attend the last one in Lima in 2018. This is the first summit of the Americas hosted by the U.S. since the very first summit in 1994 in Miami when my ranking member colleague was struggling through elementary school. The world certainly doesn't look like it um, did back then when democracy was ascendant, the Soviet Union had collapsed, NAFTA had just been signed, and there was broad optimism about a free trade agreement for the Americas. So fast forward to today, and citizens across the region are increasingly dissatisfied with how democracy works, in part because their governments haven't delivered, and people view elections and elected representatives as untrustworthy. The negative outlook has only increased the allure of China's siren song of easy money and economic relationship that comes with little transparency and little quality. But despite some malaise, we see people across the hemisphere continuing to fight for their rights to speak freely, for institutions that treat them fairly, and for the right to decide how they're governed, principles that are embodied in the Inter-American Democratic Charter that all OAS members agreed to 21 years ago at the third summit of the Americas in Quebec City. We see journalists in Mexico doggedly fighting for their freedom of speech, even at the risk of being killed by criminals, which tragically continues to happen. We saw Nicaragua's own representative to the OAS in March forcefully denounce his government's brutal repression of its people. We've seen Guatemalan prosecutors and judges fighting to uphold the rule of law in their country, even if it means they have to leave their country to do so. We also see partners like Costa Rica, Panama, and the Dominican Republic banding together in a democratic alliance to defend the values outlined in the charter. And I welcome that development and hope we might see more of it. There are serious challenges that affect us all and that require collective action, pandemic recovery, economic inequality, drug trafficking, corruption, encroachment by our adversaries, climate change, irregular migration. All these require U.S. engagement and leadership in the region. And so I will welcome an administration's ambitious and inclusive agenda in response to these many issues and look forward to hearing how it's approaching the summit with these challenges in mind. 
we're not going to fix everything at the summit. It's, it's a dialogue, but we need more dialogue and we need more partnership. We're all Americans and the event provides us with unique and important opportunity to advance our interests and values. I'm also interested in hearing how the administration intends to shore up commitment to the Democratic Charter. Last week, I joined Senators Menendez, Rubio, and others in introducing legislation to uphold the Charter because regardless of whatever disagreements we've had as a region, we decided collectively back in 2001, I would argue properly that we should prioritize the values outlined in the Charter. And one last comment before I turn it over to my ranking member, Senator Rubio, for his remarks. I last visited the region in July of 2021 with six senators, three Democrats, and three Republicans. And our visit coincided with the delivery of vaccines. And I heard such um, appreciation. Um, many of these nations have said to us again and again, whether we're in the region or whether their heads are state or here visiting with us, that they feel like we don't pay attention that they would rather deal with the United States, that the connections between us make the partnership a natural one, but that our presence is mostly an absence and other nations like China are more active and present. And so as the vaccine deliveries were occurring, there was such an outpouring of support in the nations that we went to, Ecuador, Guatemala, Colombia, and, um, and Mexico, such an outpouring of of thanks and, and kind of like, we're so glad you're back. And, and in, in the tragedy of the pandemic where nearly 30% of the deaths in the world have been in Latin America, they contrasted a United States that was willing to give them the best vaccines in the world with a China or Russia that were willing to sell them substandard vaccines and then cancel the contracts if they said something nice about Taiwan, for example. I think our vaccine diplomacy last year opened an opportunity, potentially an opportunity for a new chapter of more engagement, um, more attention, more focus. And I pledge to work together with my ranking member uh, on this committee to help ensure that that happens. And with now, I'd, I'd like to offer an opportunity for opening comments to somebody who's been a strong leader in the US-Latin America relationship during his entire career, Senator Rubio. Well, thank you, Chairman Kane, and, and, and thank you for your continued interest and, and your willingness to, I think this is actually a very timely hearing, and I appreciate all the work you did to make it come about. And um, I too remember that 1994 summit in my hometown in Miami. I was a 23-year-old just completing the eighth grade for the fifth time. And, um, <laughs> and uh, but, but all kidding aside, I remember because in 1994, uh, we were in that sort of post-Cold War hubris, right? Everybody, the world was going to, everyone was headed towards not just the liberalization of trade and democracies, but everyone was going to, uh, everyone was going to look more like us. Uh, there was no Soviet Union, and, and the world had changed, and there was a tremendous amount of optimism about the direction of Latin America, which had been plagued throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s by right-wing dictators and left-wing strongmen, and, and suddenly you saw all these countries from Nicaragua to Paraguay, Bolivia, all these emerging from that era to, to something very different. There was a tremendous amount of optimism. But, uh, but obviously, the history did not end in 1991, and human nature being what it is, that's an ongoing challenge. And we fast forward to today. This Summit of the Americas, um, actually, I remember the last Summit of the Americas that I attended in Peru, and it was my suggestion to the then Trump administration that they issue an invitation that the next one be in the United States. And my hope was that it would be in Washington, because if it were in Washington, we would have an opportunity for our colleagues here in the Senate and in the House will be in session to interact with those foreign leaders, they would be in town and it would really highlight the importance of that event. For whatever reason, they chose another site and that's fine. That's not our, our biggest challenge. 
the, here, here's the biggest challenge. The, the, we are really in a pivotal, with all that's going on in the world, and it's very important, we're in a very pivotal moment when it comes to the region. There are an enormous number of rising challenges that need to be addressed. That post-Cold War hubris about democracy is being directly challenged, including in places that elect people uh, who win elections uh, and then don't govern as Democrats. And in fact, that they use their elect the power they acquire electorally to undermine uh, the, the functioning of institutions. That's been the case in a number of places. Nicaragua is one, uh, Venezuela is another. Um, and so you have the, the real challenge today, not just of a long-term dictatorship that's been in Cuba for a very long time, but what basically are now dictatorships in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, and the fear that that could spread to other places. The rise of anti-American leaders in a number of places, including places where they're elected, whose rhetoric is openly hostile or at least certainly counter to our national interests. Um, perhaps the biggest challenge in the region is the sense that America is just not engaged, that we just don't care. And, and unfortunately, you know, I think that's reflected in a number of places, including, frankly, with all due respect, here in the United States Senate, where a handful of us do care a lot about what happens in the region, but others are, just don't spend a lot of time on it. And I understand that the world is a busy place and there are a lot of issues to cover, but in the, um, in the framework of public policy, foreign policy focus, it, it, Western Hemisphere, I think is neglected uh, given its importance both strategically and, and geographically to what's happening in the United States. We have real challenges in migration, migration that's largely driven by the fact that people feel they can no longer live in their countries. And so these countries in the Western Hemisphere aren't just sources of migration. It's one of the things that people don't talk enough about. They're not just sources of migration, they're transit points for migration. And the transit alone is an extraordinary burden on these countries. Talk to the late government leaders in places like Panama. Talk to the government leaders in Mexico, and they will tell you that becoming a transit point for migration from people from over 70 or 80 countries around the world poses an extraordinary challenge on them, um, in, in addition to the fact that there are countries, for example, in Central America, Honduras, Guatemala, where the youngest people in that country, their future, their workforce, the, the ones that should be building the future of the country have decided that their future belongs somewhere else and are trying to figure out how to get out. And, uh, and that's driven by not just lack of economic opportunity, but violence, murder, you know, extortion by local criminal gangs and corrupt government leaders, uh, oftentimes in the pockets in some places of these elements. And then, and then you also have Chinese interest in the region, Chinese policies, policies of exploitation, its attempts to trap developing economies and, and, and debt traps that they never can get out of, get their hands on natural resources, um, and things of this nature, and then Russia, which is always seeking ways uh, to uh, harm the national interest of the United States in low-cost, high-yield propositions like their involvement in Venezuela, like their hope of uh, potentially establishing a military presence in, in, in Nicaragua, like, like, like the spread of propaganda, over 100-something individual online outlets that the Russians are now behind uh, to spread propaganda in the region that needs to be countered. All that said, there are also real opportunities in the Western Hemisphere that I think we're missing. I ask myself, as we watch these supply chain disruptions, because stuff is made halfway around the world and now it's shut down because of a pandemic or whatever it may be, why aren't more things being made? If it can't be made in America, why aren't they being made in places closer to America? Why don't we have huge factories in Haiti or in Guatemala or in Honduras, places that could provide opportunity for employment in those countries? And by the way, 
are located much closer to us in terms of supply chains and disruptions. Why aren't they there? There's a lot of reasons. Some of it has to, a lot of it has to do with the decisions of these local governments, but some of it I think has to do with the fact that we haven't had a strategic vision to encourage that. What role are we playing there? And, that, and I think that's really an important opportunity for us to provide uh, some leadership in that direction. And then add to that the opportunity to provide a, a counter. And many of these countries that come to us and say, look, we don't want to do investment deals with the Chinese, but they show up with a bunch of money, no strings attached, and you guys offer no alternative. There's no alternative. And, and I think that has to change, and some of that's begun to change, but I think it has to change much faster. These are the things that have to be covered. But in the end, we can never forget what the summit was always about. This is called the Summit of the Americas, but it really should be called as the Summit of Democracy in the Americas. Because the purpose of the summit is to bring together democratically elected governments to show that democracy can work, that democracy can lead to actions that solve the real problems of real people. It's why I think it's so disturbing that so much pressure is being placed on this administration, which is still unclear about exactly what kind of summit this will be. I'll close with this, and this is an important point. This is not about not inviting Cuba because we want to send a message or not inviting Nicaragua or because we want to send a message or not inviting Maduro because we want to appease some electorate in the United States. It's this. You can't claim to be a summit of democracies if at the table are seated elements that are clearly anti-democratic. And it actually, what it does is it gives them credibility. There's credibility attached to being invited to these forums. There's credibility attached to being, and the credibility that's damaging, by the way, to those who oppose them to people that have risked their lives, risked their fortunes, risked their futures, risked everything to stand up to these people and are being told, well, those are the leaders of that country and we have to deal with them. It is demoralizing to those who stand up and oppose them to see the people who they oppose have been so vicious and harmful to their countries being treated as legitimate governments deserving of the same recognition and the same standing as democratically elected leaders in places like Costa Rica. It's, it's demoralizing. And, and not only is it demoralizing, it's uplifting. These regimes laugh at it, they brag about it, and they use it to further demoralize their opposition and to further coalesce the internal support for their own leadership in their countries uh, among their inner circle. So these are important things that we have to consider. Look, I appreciate you being here today. I'm obviously not pleased by the, the lackluster rollout, but I'm glad you know, someone's on the job and trying to pull this thing together. But I think it's really important that it be done the right way, because I would rather have no summit at all than one that is counterproductive. And I fear that potentially this is where we might wind up. So thank you for being here. Thank you for your willingness to work on this issue. And I look forward to hearing your testimony and then asking you some questions. Thank you, Senator Rubio. We do have two great panels. Um, on the first panel, we have Kevin O'Reilly, who is the Summit of America's National Coordinator at the Department of State in the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. He was previously Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Brazil and Southern Cone Affairs and Andean Affairs. He's a career member of the U.S. Foreign Service. He's served abroad at U.S. Embassies in Mexico, the Dominican Republic, Argentina, and Indonesia. He holds master's degrees from the U.S. Naval War College in Johns Hopkins. He received his bachelor in history and his law degree from Loyola University of Chicago. Thanks for joining us for this important discussion. Mr. O'Reilly, you'll be offered the opportunity now to provide testimony. We ask you to be concise, summarize your statement within five minutes. Your entire statement will be included in the record, and then we will proceed to questions. Thank you very much, Senator. Uh, Chairman Kane, uh, Ranking Member Rubio, and members of the subcommittee, and I'm, I'm honored to have the opportunity to appear before you today. On June 8th, President Biden will arrive in Los Angeles to host the Summit of the Americas. 
a first for us since the inaugural event in 1994. This will bring together governments from across our hemisphere to create new opportunities for our citizens and citizens across the Americas. We see, as well, direct engagement between the people and their government leaders as a summit priority, and, and we expect people from every country of the hemisphere to join us in Los Angeles, including from lands where authoritarians would silence their citizens, to focus on building an equitable, sustainable, and resilient future. Civil society, youth, and business will participate through the Civil Society Forum, the Young Americas Forum, and CEO Summit. And for the first time, representatives of these groups will engage directly with heads of state and government in roundtable discussions. Their conversations on topics ranging from accelerating digital transformation and safe and secure communities address U.S. priorities and also exemplify the exchanges between citizens and elected officials that characterize the best in democratic dialogue. The department chairs a process known as the Summit Implementation Review Group, through which governments develop leader-level commitments to adopt and launch in Los Angeles. We intend to establish a comprehensive action plan on strengthening health systems, on working together to prevent, prepare for, and respond to health crises, and strengthen our health infrastructure, including the health sector workforce, and in so doing, create growth in our economies. Our commitments for a green future and clean energy transition aim to put the region at the forefront of sustainable growth while addressing climate <laughs> challenges. To bridge the digital divide and make sure all can benefit from the 21st century economy, we intend to create the first regional agenda and common principles on preparing citizens and societies for the digital transformation reshaping our hemisphere and our world. Finally, this summit offers our region's democratic leaders an opportunity to affirm their commitment to democracy and to the citizens for whom, from whom they derive their authority by adopting an action plan on building strong and inclusive democracies. These commitments reflect both our priorities and topics of broad concerns identified in consultation with governments, civil society, youth, and business from across the region, a process that we began shortly after we first assumed the chair of the summit process from Peru in July of 2020. These commitments, each in their own way, help address the root causes of irregular migration exacerbated by the pandemic and now by raise, rising global prices on agricultural food and other commodities, a challenge made much worse by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. To drive economic recovery, we have to push for reforms and expand opportunities for financing from transparent sources such as the American Development Bank and its private sector window, IDB Invest. This agenda can help focus governments on strengthening democratic resilience, fighting corruption, increasing health security, supporting strengthening independent media and civil society, promoting more equitable economic growth that reaches the people on the peripheries of our societies and combating the climate crisis. Each summit pillar in some way addresses the root causes of migration across our hemisphere, a major challenge for the US, but not only the United States, it affects us all. And so President Biden and other heads of government and heads of state will also discuss how to work together and develop um, 
collaborative, coordinated responses to migration and forced displacement. And, uh, and we hope that this process will set uh, the course for stabilizing migrant populations, expanding legal pathways, improving humane migration management to bring our historic migration crises under control. We're gonna to work together with members of this committee uh, to make the summit a success, joining partners from across the hemisphere to meet shared challenges. And we see clear value in building a regional consensus on such priorities wherever we can. We'll now go to five minute rounds of questions. Um, and I will begin and then go to the ranking member. So let's, let's go ahead and start. Um, Mr. Riley, the administration, there has been criticism for the approach to the summit. Foreign leaders have criticized the exclusion of Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. My colleague addressed that well in his opening. Others have criticized the lack of a plan to improve the region's economy and trade linkages or overall lack of prioritizing the region. Um, these are criticisms that, you know, would not be unexpected. Um, summits are good for bringing leaders together to dialogue, but the real test of a summit is, 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 is if there is after action. What would you, what is the administration hoping might be the after action um, results or, or strategies coming out of the summit next, uh, in June? Thank you, Senator. Uh, we were indeed pressed as a result of the pandemic and a lot of the preparations have in fact been compressed. We were only able, uh, judging the evolution of the pandemic and other circumstances to announce earlier this year that Los Angeles would be the venue. Uh, and it has in fact uh, made communication tighter. But we've been working on developing a positive agenda from long before that and in consultations with other governments. And these are some of the outputs that are the results that we hope to encourage. And I mentioned some of them in my opening uh, uh, comments. First, uh, working together with governments in the region to develop an action plan on health. Now, it's not just a question of, um, of, of responding to the crisis, but rather, look, this, this hemisphere created the, um, the modern public health systems of this world. The predecessor of the Pan American Health Organization long predates any other multilateral organization of that type anywhere in the world. And we have 8% of the planet's population and suffered something like 30 plus percent of the fatalities in this Western hemisphere. And so, I'm gonna, just gonna dialogue with you rather than we, we each please. speak a long time. And that was the case, 30% of the population, 8% of the population, 30% of the deaths, but we only sent 8% of our vaccines to the Americas. Um, we prioritize based on population, not based on need. Um, in the Americas, because of migration flows, there's probably a, a much greater case to be made that it was being in the United States' interest to prioritize more vaccine delivery in the Americas because that's where the threat was. As we were doing vaccine distribution within the United States, we tended to prioritize communities that were getting hit hardest by COVID, but we kind of used an approach globally, well, let's just, you know, let's just spread it equally over every part of the world, whether or not there's a serious challenge. And I, and I would argue that uh, that provision of 8% of our vaccines to a population that had 30% of the deaths, it was, it was an under-prioritization of the Americas. 
Um, and we were slow going in. Russia and China got in first with PPE. The good thing is once we started producing vaccines and delivering, there was great appreciation for our effort. But um, so I think the vaccine diplomacy has opened a door after we kind of got out of the blocks slow. Um, but, I, but I hope we'll build on that door opening. And I, I was pleased to hear you put health as one of the first pillars because I think that, that could be such an obvious area given the times we live in and, and the recent success that we've had in at least delivering high quality product in a way that's been appreciated. And, and sir, we've seen as well that uh, now uh, as this circumstance has evolved, we see governments and individuals across the region opting for higher quality, more reliable resources provided from uh, U.S. innovation and, and U.S. Uh, firms uh, in order to meet these requirements. And we have managed to distribute free, with, as you mentioned earlier, free and without, without strings, nearly, I think it's 68 million doses. And we have, in fundamental ways, helped change the trajectory let, of let, the pandemic. Let me just stick with health, and I'll go over a little bit over, and I want to go to Senator Rubio. He raised in his opening this sort of nearshoring concept a lot of our supply chains are, you know, in China and Asia. Um, we hadn't defined in the past uh, uh, health equipment, medical equipment as kind of a national security supply chain that we needed to keep close. And so we ended up really in a jam when it came to things like PPE sure. uh, at the front end of the pandemic. Um, these are textile products. They could be perfectly manufactured in you know, American textile firms that are already operating in Central America, they could expand employment, expand opportunities. Um, the idea of defining uh, medical equipment, medical supplies as a national security uh, imperative and wanting them closer to our shore, they should be manufactured in the United States or possibly in a, in a country with a trade agreement with the United States. This could bring tremendous economic opportunity to the Americas uh, and it could also uh, be part of this first health pillar. We're, we're, we're producing more uh, to prepare for the next challenge and the next pandemic right here that will benefit everyone. Is, is that sort of nearshoring focus or how we can drive economic development to meet the, the healthcare goal that you described as pillar one, is that the kind of thing that there will be discussions about? We've tried to work very hard with colleagues across the region as we head into the summit to make, to have that kind of cooperative discussion about the standards, um, the, the market requirements, the, uh, uh, what, what consumers in, of high quality health goods need in terms of production and what firms, uh, and what firms need in terms of the standards for transparency uh, in order to create just those kinds of opportunities in health, not only in health, but in health. And we've certainly had discussions on the, the sort of technical nuts and bolts of these uh, sorts of challenges with um, governments across the region. Um, I know I've certainly with the government of Columbia, we've had these discussions and with others as to how they can make themselves attractive to free market um, uh, uh, a free market to participate in this kind of production because we know that the region has the talent and the creativity uh, to do so. 
Uh, I'm going to now turn it over for questions to Senator Rubio. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, just a couple points on the offshore thing. And then, well, number one, the most important thing they can do is people need to know if I open a factory in your country, some mayor or police chief isn't going to show up a month later saying, hey, I have a deed here that says this property belongs to me. You need to pay me you know, $5,000 a month or $10,000 a month in order to keep the business. Um, that's usually bad for business. So um, I think that that's the beginning of it. And then the other is I think we need to prioritize and figure out ways to use our own financing mechanisms to create those incentives. I think the market incentives are there if, if there were the capital uh, availability uh, uh, through the Inter-American Development Bank or some other measures. And, and I think that that's really important, but we have to focus on it. But, but I wanted to ask you some very specific questions. Have we invited anyone from the Cuban regime to be a part of the summit? Sorry, pardon me. Senator, uh, that will be uh, a decision for the White House to make. So we have not yet invited, as far as I mean, you would know, if we invited someone, we haven't yet invited anyone to the summit. That would be a White House call, sir. No, I know it would be a call. I'm asking if it's already been made. Uh, not to my knowledge. Okay. Um, we recognize Juan Guaido as the legitimate interim president of Venezuela. That's a correct... Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Have we invited him or anyone from the interim government to the summit? We're in constant discussions with them about, about how to participate and engage in the summit. Have we invited them to the summit yet? We're, we're in regular discussions with them. And no, I know you're in regular discussion. I, think the I know what you're answering because I get it. But I'm asking, have we invited? Yes, or I mean, have we invited them or not? We have, we are, we're in, in those discussions, have we invited them yet? Or we just we yet haven't made that invitation? That's that will be a White House call, sir. OK, so the White House hasn't made that call yet, correct? That'll be a White House call, sir. But have they made that call yet? Not to my knowledge, sir. Okay. Why is it so hard to answer these things? These are just pretty straightforward questions. I'm not, not trying to trick you. It's just I just want to know. I get it. But look, if the answer is the White House has to make that call. They haven't made that call yet. I get it. That's not, I'm not saying that's your call to make. I'm just asking the question because that's why we have these hearings. Of course. All right. Um, have we invited representatives of civil society in Cuba, for example, people involved in what happened last July, mostly artists and things of this nature, who simply you know, wanted to be able to have freedom of expression. Has anybody like that been invited to the summit? Yes, sir. We want to have as broad a participation from civil society uh, from every country which, where authoritarians, where dictators are seeking to snuff out public debate. So we have made those invitations? Say yes, sir. Okay. Um, have we invited the Maduro uh, regime or any of its representatives to the summit? Absolutely not. We don't recognize them as, as a sovereign government. Okay. And um, have we invited uh, anyone from the uh, Ortega regime to the summit? No. Okay. My question is this. Um, my understanding is that uh, President Obrador in Mexico is, I think, probably the ringleader of this. We're going to boycott the summit unless you invite this trifecta of tyranny in, uh, in Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba. Um, is that influencing in the decisions we're making in regards to, I mean, is that something we're taking into account in regards to who we invite or what we do moving forward? We're certainly having discussions with the government of Mexico and with all the governments in the region about, uh, about the structuring and organization of the debate. I mean, next week I'll be in Los Angeles to continue discussions um, on the the agenda that I just discussed, and I know the White House and other senior officials are 
constantly in dialogue with, uh, with the Mexicans and with many other governments. You, the former chairman of this subcommittee, uh, Christopher Dodd, is currently traveling in, um, in South America as the president's special uh, advisor for the summit and uh, has had consultations with um, already with uh, Brazil, Chile, Argentina, and will visit other countries as well. It's just my view on it is, and I've seen the public statements that Obrador's made about, well, we're not going to go to the summit if these guys aren't invited and so forth. My view of it is this. I don't think the United States of America should, frankly, be bullied or pressured into who to invite to a summit we're hosting. If he doesn't want to come, he doesn't come. In my view, the, one of the great things about it is if we have a summit where we don't invite dictators and the people who wanted dictators to come decide to boycott it, then we'll just know who our real friends are in the region and govern ourselves accordingly. I think it'd be a good opportunity to filter out the, 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 those who are aligned with our views uh, on the direction of the region and those who aren't. My, um, I, I want to ask you about Haiti. We've invited the, prime, the current prime minister of Haiti, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. And, um, and obviously, I, mean, I don't want to speculate about what happened between now and that summit and so forth, but I have very deep concerns about Haiti, in particular the... the the prime ministers, he's an interim prime minister. There's a lot, not a lot of clarity there about what happens if, God forbid, he is removed from office via a coup or something far worse, and we're hoping that doesn't happen. Um, and and I'm, I imagine the topic of Haiti, its future, its direction, how it goes from here on out, is something that'll be on the summit agenda. Is that something we're proactively raising? We, we are uh, very much engaged as part of the broad sweep of our diplomacy in the hemisphere on just that agenda, sir. Yeah, I think we really should highlight that as far as understanding what we can do first to help along with partners in the region to get some stability in Haiti. Without stability in Haiti, um, it has an impact on multiple countries. I mean, even Cuba is now intercepting Haitian migrants. We're beginning to see that. There's certainly a large number of Haitian migrants that are now transiting through Central America. Uh, and presenting themselves at the southern border. The Bahamas has long had to confront these sorts of challenges. And so I think it's really important that that be a topic that's highlighted and focused upon because I do think there are countries in the region that, can, that have a vested interest, beginning with the Dominican Republic, that obviously shares Espanola with them, but others that have a vested interest in contributing towards some level of governmental stability there. Um, and, and, and security so that we can, that can then be built upon to hopefully provide a better. And I, I just hope that, the, that the, the topic of Haiti is prominently featured on the agenda and it's something that we really confront. Um, I'll turn it back over and then I don't know if you have a second round. Excellent, I think um, Senator Cardin will now ask questions by WebEx. All right, we're going to try to get Senator Cardin up, but while we're doing that, let me ask an, another question. Uh, Mr. O'Reilly, one of the natural tendencies we have is to focus on the kind of problem areas, and so, you know, the dictatorship or democratic backsliding in the region is, is very real. I mean, Senator Rubio's opening statement kind of talked about the difference in the vibe between 1994 in Miami and, and 2022 in Los Angeles, but there are also some some bright spots, and I think often what you really need to do is when you have bright spots, amplify them. So the Alliance for Democracy and Development, Dominican Republic, Panama, Costa Rica, wanting to you know, uh, have a greater uh, center of gravity to advocate for democracy, rule of law, human rights, I think that's a positive. 
it's, it's early in the new tenure of the president of Chile, but I have viewed uh, his willingness to call out abuses by governments that you might think, because he kind of came from the left, he would be supportive of his willingness to call out abuses in Nicaragua or the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's promising. What, what are you thinking about uh, strategies for the summit that we might do to kind of amplify or, or, or shine a spotlight on some of the positive developments in the region to counter a narrative that it's just all, all a backslide right now. No, absolutely, Senator. And you know, we've also been very uh, encouraged by the work of the of the governments of of um, the Dominican Republic, of Panama, and Costa Rica. And you can already see that this is um, something that certainly in Costa Rica um, crosses their local partisan divide. The change of administration has not changed their commitment to this objective at all. And w this is not something that we brought forward. This is a, this is a, uh, a homegrown uh, initiative and one that's exceptionally positive. And we see those kinds of uh, positive developments as well in places like Ecuador. And yes, I think you're right. After the difficult divisions and public debate in, in Chile, that dates from before the pandemic. Uh, you see a situation where a, a, a knitting together of a new political consensus and a great deal of, of ethical clarity about, um, about uh, uh, democratic governance. And, and that's really a fundamental for us. Um, it's not, people choose their own, in democracies, people choose their own course for their own nations. And we have no quarrel with that, whether those governments are conservative, whether they are of the left, whether they just shoot straight down the middle. It's a question of following rules, of democratic participation, of their own constitutions. These are our complaints with people like uh, Nicolás Maduro, uh, who trample those, that, the, those rules of the road, if you would, of, of any democratic government. And so part of our, uh, our agenda of this action plan for um, uh, strengthening uh, the commitments we made to one another in, um, in Quebec City and then on that, the one bright spot on that sad day of September 11th, 2001 with the Inter-American Democratic Charter is to make sure that we're setting up positive agenda for democratic governance because as, um, as you know, Senator Rubio was just saying, um, you do all the right things to build a, 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 a business and then someone sticks their hands off uh, for a kickback. Well, that's a question of democratic governance. Uh, that's a question of accountability. Those are the ways that we can build, if we strengthen those institutions, if we strengthen the rule of law, if we strengthen accountability, that's where we get the opportunity to show people that the faith they place in democratic governance, well, that faith is well-founded. And so um, much of our agenda, whether it's health, whether it's digital, whether it's the economic, broad agenda of economic recovery uh, that pulls people in from the margins and makes them feel that they're invested in their future, well, the foundation of all of that is effective democratic governance. Indeed, indeed. Um, is Senator Cardin available now?
Senator Rubio, do you have uh, additional questions for Mr. O'Reilly before the second panel? All right, Mr. O'Reilly, thank you. Um, I'll see you in Los Angeles. Uh, we are gonna be hopefully bringing a number of senators out for Thursday evening and Friday. Um, and uh, we hope that the summit is a success, but even more than that, we hope that the aftermath of the summit demonstrates a uh, just a higher level of, of attention, focus, and uh, partnership uh, between Americans, North, Central, and South. Thank you very much. And we'll now introduce our second panel. As you come on up, we will begin. Very, very happy to welcome both Dr. Chavez and Mr. Farnsworth uh, to the subcommittee today. Looks like some sleight of hand going on with the name tags. Um, so let me introduce our second panel of witnesses. Dr. Rebecca Bill Chavez, who's the president and CEO of the Inter-American Dialogue. She's formerly a senior fellow in the Dialogue's Rule of Law program, previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Western Hemisphere Affairs from 2013 till 2016. In that role, she prioritized women, peace, and security initiatives combating the militarization of law enforcement and also expanded defense institution building programs. Prior to that, Dr. Chavez was a tenured professor of political science at the Naval Academy. Her research focused on democracy, the rule of law, and human rights. She received her master's and PhD in political science from Stanford, bachelor's degree from Princeton. Uh, Eric Farnsworth. Eric leads the Washington Office of the Council of the Americas. Prior to work with the Council, he spent almost a decade in government with the Department of State, Office of U.S. Trade Representative, and the Clinton White House. He also served in the United States Senate with a, a wonderful former Senator Sam Nunn. I want to thank both of you for joining, and I'd like to ask first Dr. Chavez and then Eric Farnsworth uh, if you will deliver your opening testimony, and then we'll go to questions. Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Rubio, members of the subcommittee, thank you so much for the opportunity to testify today about the Summit of the Americas. As you mentioned, I'm President and CEO of the Inter-American Dialogue, which is a think tank that's dedicated to the issues we're talking about today, to fostering democratic governance, prosperity, and social equity in Latin America and the Caribbean. In my testimony today, I want to underscore two core points. First, we should not view the summit as a single discrete event. Instead, the Biden administration should use this gathering to announce a holistic strategy and vision for Latin America and the Caribbean. This is really important. A lot of commentators, myself included, have been asking questions like who will be invited, who will attend. But what's most important is that the summit is happening and we should make sure that it lays down the foundation for longer term sustained engagement in the region. It has to be a launching pad. It cannot be a one and done event. The summit should be a part of a broader effort to re-engage, reassert the US position as a partner and leader in the region, and reassure the region that the United States cares deeply about the America's collective future and well-being. 
Second, the Biden administration must release as soon as possible a robust summit agenda that reflects and aligns with the concerns of the region as well as with U.S. interests. I was pleased to hear some elements of that agenda um, earlier from Mr. O'Reilly. As he notes, there are critical issues on which the U.S. can and should work together with the nations of the hemisphere, many of which weren't of concern at the, during the first summit in 1994 when democracy and economic development were on the rise. Today, the region is polarized. COVID-19 has laid bare public health and economic challenges. Democracy is in retreat. Climate change is threatening the safety of people. And global rivals are making their financial and political presence strongly felt. I'm just going to highlight three such issues. First on the summit agenda, and a critical component of an America's strategy should be the hemisphere-wide migration crisis, which can only be addressed in collaboration with partners. We've tended to focus on our southern border. And I was pleased to hear Mr. O'Reilly today talking about the broader um, nature of this crisis. So I want to highlight that migrants from a diverse set of countries, including Venezuela, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Cuba, in addition to the Northern Triangle countries, are fleeing a mix of acute humanitarian crises, political repression, violence, and state fragility. Over six million Venezuelan refugees are overwhelming neighboring countries. That's on the scale of the Syria and Ukraine refugee crises, and it's happening here in our hemisphere. Over six million. We can't forget that's happening. Granting TPS to Venezuelans was important, but just as the U.S., on a bipartisan basis, has generously stepped up to assist Ukrainian refugees, so should we work with our hemispheric and global partners to help refugees in the Americas. Part of the agenda that I hope will be incorporated into a broader America's strategy is COVID-19. We need a region-wide plan for the still-evolving pandemic and for public health emergencies that the region will undoubtedly face in the future. As been, has been alluded to, COVID hit Latin America and the Caribbean hard. Over 27% of the total number of COVID deaths in a region with only 8% of the world's population. I fully agree that we need to prioritize vaccine distribution to our, our partners in the Americas. And also at the summit, the U.S. should begin to work on a more cooperative approach, not just to manage the COVID pandemic, but to strengthen health, public health systems more generally. Finally, the COVID crisis has brought into focus the need for inclusive economic recovery. The pandemic has contributed to a devastated, devastating economic contraction of 7% in 2020, leading to a 10% increase in poverty. Given that impact, coupled with the rising inflation, there are several commitments that the Biden administration should make in Los Angeles. And these also must be included in a strategic vision for the region. We can't, we have to move beyond discussion. We need to expand efforts to attract private investment to the region. We need to announce climate-friendly infrastructure investment initiatives to follow through on the Build Back Better World promises. And we need real action when it comes to nearshoring. 
I want to conclude by thanking you for drawing attention to the summit and also more broadly to Latin America and the Caribbean, a region that is so important to the interests of the United States. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Dr. Chavez. Mr. Farnsworth. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity again to testify before this subcommittee. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, members, I really want to thank you both and those who may be on WebEx for your continued leadership on these issues. Uh, it's genuine. Uh, we need, uh, Mr. Rubio, the types of leaders in the Senate that you spoke of in your statement, uh, and both of you dedicating today's hearing, but also your own uh, prioritization of the Western Hemisphere is noticed, and it's meaningful, and it's important. So thank you uh, for that. In uncertainty, there is opportunity, and the Summit of the Americas presents an important opportunity for the United States to meet the region where it is, to present a true partnership for regional recovery, to work to ensure that the next pandemic wave is less terrible, and to stand firmly and resolutely for democracy. The world has changed dramatically since the first US-hosted summit in 1994. I was also there in Miami, and I saw personally the excitement and ambition of the assembled leaders, each one democratically elected. We were at the, quote, end of history, unquote. Russia had been chastened. China was not yet a thing, at least in the Americas. Nation after nation had moved from dictatorship to democracy, from economic distress to stability, from closed economies to open, toward a real desire for expanding trade with the United States and with each other. Only Cuba remained an outlier, then as now, although today both Venezuela and Nicaragua have also left the democratic path. And Haiti continues to struggle to constitute and sustain democratic governance, as it also did in 1994. And other countries in the region also face democratic challenges. But across the region, one constant since Miami is the desire to meet the needs and improve the lives of citizens. And this is where we have a real opportunity in Los Angeles for lasting, positive change if we choose to prioritize these issues. Latin America and the Caribbean have, hit hard, have been hit hard by the COVID pandemic, as we've already heard. Beyond the awful human costs, budgets have been strained, debt has increased, and rising US interest rates are making dollar-denominated debt more difficult to service. The World Bank projects regional growth this year of just over 2% hardly enough to create the jobs the region requires to get back on its feet or to address rising social demands. Ultimately, the region's leaders themselves are responsible for job creation and development in their own countries, but we can help. And if we want the United States to maintain a privileged position in the Americas, I believe we have to help, because alternatives now exist that did not exist before. The Los Angeles summit would be the perfect opportunity for Washington to announce a commitment to regional growth and recovery, launching a concerted effort on debt service and relief, new lending, incentives for private sector-led investment, and trade. And while a significant trade initiative may not be in the cards, there is no reason Washington cannot propose a region-wide effort to liberalize individual sectors such as environmental technology, goods and services, or the digital economy, or healthcare, consistent with and building on the framework, frankly, that the president just announced himself in Tokyo for Asia. Why can't we use a similar approach for the Western Hemisphere? More ambitiously, consistent with the region's own interests, 
I propose we seek to expand the bipartisan USMCA into the rest of the hemisphere, including other nations as they show the interest and capacity to meet the standards and obligations that the agreement requires. Second, the pandemic is not yet over, but it is clear that sustainable health systems are an investment in the region's economies as, in, as, in, as well as the well-being of its most vulnerable citizens. Mr. Chairman, I really appreciate your comments in terms of vaccines, and I've been saying since the pandemic began with the hashtag vaccinate the Americas that we have to prioritize the Americas for the public health reasons, for sure, but also there's a strategic component here with China. It's something that makes sense for us to be doing. We would be better positioned to ensure regional healthcare systems work better, and we would be better able to prioritize uh, help in terms of the inevitable next pandemic. But there's also one very important aspect here, and that is that the pandemic is, it's fundamental to fix the pandemic if the region's tourism services sector is going to recover. Tourism is a major services export, and with the high US dollar right now, there should be a huge uh, desire for American citizens, particularly US citizens, to travel to the Western Hemisphere to take advantage of the strong US dollar. But they're not doing that necessarily because still the pandemic is raging in parts of the hemisphere. So it's not just a health issue, it's an economic recovery issue, and I think we have to acknowledge that. Finally, we must be committed stewards of regional democracy. We can all do better in practice, for sure, ourselves included. But it is important to uphold the basic democratic standard for, democratic, for, for summit participation. That's why the bipartisan upholding the Inter-American Democratic Charter Act of 2022 is so very much appreciated uh, for both you, Mr. Chairman, and Mr. Ranking Member. In that vein, Venezuela's constitutional leader, Juan Guaido, should also be invited to the summit, and as of late last night at least, he had not yet been invited. These issues are fraught, but it begs a question. At this point, what is the purpose of regional summits? Because simply meeting a commitment to meet is not enough. Without an ambitious, attractive agenda to rally around, the narrative is too easily captured by those who, whose interests do not coincide with our own, and indeed, that has been the case. Working toward regional recovery, including trade expansion, addressing healthcare and other social needs, and standing for democracy, even when it may be unpopular to do so, in my view, would be a great place to begin. Mr. Chairman, members of the subcommittee, thank you again for the opportunity to testify. Thank you, Mr. Farnsworth, to both of you. We'll question in this order. Senator Cardin was trying to get in by WebEx in his car and couldn't, but now he's here in person. We're, I'm going to let him uh, start, then we'll go to Senator Ruby, then we'll go to me. Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Sometimes I have a little bit of a challenge. I, I live in Baltimore and commute every day, so I'm in a car a lot and um, had a hard time working my monitor in the car today. I wasn't driving. I just want everybody to know that. But uh, let me thank the chairman and ranking member. Uh, for their leadership on this subcommittee. I know both of them have really made this one of their top priorities in their service in the United States Senate. Uh, and uh, this is our hemisphere. This is our neighborhood. And their leadership has been extraordinary. I want to thank our two witnesses. The Summit of America gives us an opportunity uh, once again to meet with our, uh, our uh, states in our hemisphere on a common agenda. I, I, I just want to agree with our leadership on this committee that it has to be under the values of our hemisphere, which are democratic states that respect human rights. Uh, I heard the exchange uh, between uh, Senator Rubio and our previous witness. Uh, I think it's critically important that our values are maintained at this summit. 
uh, and it'll be tested in the, the uh, ability to allow those voices to be heard in countries that are autoc autocratic and are not living up to the commitments that we expect in our hemisphere. I, I want to raise just one additional question, if I might. Regional organizations, I understand, will be part of this summit. There'll be a discussion as to how they can more effectively help in dealing with the issues that many of you have talked about. Uh, we could talk about the Inter-American Development Bank or the Pan-American Health Organization, but I want to talk about the Organization of American States. It's an important organization. Its venue or its headquarters is just a short distance from here. It seems to me it could be more an effective voice on the challenges of our hemisphere. So Senator Wicker and I, who chair and are ranking on the Helsinki Commission, have been extremely active in the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. We think that organization has been more effective in dealing with a lot of the issues comparable to what the OAS has done. And we think one of the reasons that is true is because there's a parliamentary dimension to the OSCE. There is no real parliamentary dimension at all to OAS. So we introduced legislation, which was passed and signed into law uh, in January of 2020. Uh, to instruct our mission to move forward with a parliamentary dimension within the OAS. I mention that because at the Summit of Americas, uh, I heard that uh, our chair is going to be bringing a delegation of legislators to that uh, summit. I think that's an important thing for us to do. But I can tell you, having parliamentarians' participation in an organization enhances its effectiveness. We are not restricted as diplomats. We can call it the way it is. Listen to Senator Rubio. I mean, he'll, he'll tell you exactly the way. We, don't, we, we can speak uh, the truth. We also can translate our, our, our words into actions through parliamentary activities. So my question to our two witnesses is that looking at the regional organizations we have in our hemisphere, I don't want to lead the witness. Aren't there ways that we can make these organizations more effective? We put a lot of resources into it. We put a lot of time into it. And yet I would suggest that most members of, of Congress have little knowledge of what these regional organizations are all about. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Um, you're drawing attention to a very important issue, and that is the, the general state of the inter-American system, which I fully agree is, um, has been facing a great number of challenges. Um, what I'll say though, right off the bat is, you know, in my, kind of my desire to push the administration to develop a ho holistic strategy and vision for the Americas, I think that this should be core, a core part of that strategy is how to re reinvigorate, renew, not just the OAS, but all of the various institutions that comprise the system. I very much appreciate these creative ideas, such as incorporating parliamentary, a parliamentary dimension to the OAS, and I think that that is a great place to start. Um, 
But I do think that it's not just the OAS. I think we need to do more when it comes to the Inter-American Development Bank. The Inter-American Development Bank has not been engaged um, for a number of reasons. Um, and I think the potential of the Inter-American system, I saw it firsthand when I was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense um, and what attended two Conference of Defense Ministers of the Americas with Secretary Hagel and then with Secretary Carter. And I saw the potential for real action um, in this sort of organization. At the time, it was in response to climate change and the increasing extreme weather events and the need for a hemisphere-wide mechanism for um, the militaries of the region to come together in support of civilian authorities to respond to humanitarian, to disaster response needs. Um, so I fully agree that there, these are tools that we need, we need to renew, we need to invigorate, and I urge the administration to make this a core part of, of an America's strategy. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Um, let me, let me, I guess, Ms. Charles, I'll, I'll ask, start with you, because you, you talked a lot about the migration crisis. We agree with that, COVID-19, I mean, it's a, all of those things are important, economic growth. I, I really do wonder, I guess I want to ask a little bit about, uh, you know, your statement about reinvigorating regional organizations like the OAS and, and using that and others to, to bolster uh, democracy in, in the hemisphere. Isn't part of bolstering democracy, I believe, um, sort of elevating and those countries that are actually following democratic norms, which, by the way, democratic norms sometimes elect people whose policies we may not like, right? I mean, I certainly don't agree with some of the policy directions that President Obrador has taken in Mexico, but I don't argue that he's a dictator or that he somehow has taken power in that country through means that are illegitimate. Um, I mean, that's, that's a part of the risk here when, I mean, that, that's just part of the things that happen. And I imagine that there are people elected in this country that our partners in the Western Hemisphere sometimes don't agree with their policies as well. But, but that's different from having someone who takes power. Uh, oh, and and I really, the, the real dynamic we've seen now is people that figure out how to win elections, and then once they capture the government or once they're in power, then they begin to undermine all of the institutions in that society or, or, or you know, bend them to their, to their will. Um, the favorite is always the infamous you know, the generic electoral commission that suddenly is, you know, uh, filled with uh, all of your buddies and cronies as the vote counters, but it happens in the court system and the like. The reinvigorating democracy piece, I think, is both practical, like we need to be providing people assistance on things like countering propaganda and disinformation. I mean, if we think disinformation is damaging to American democracy, this stuff is happening in a lot of these countries. We see that. We, we see how um, that influence operations are occurring there to sort of steer the currents and, and, and not to mention the proven uh, instances where you have these transnational criminal groups that are pouring millions of dollars into political campaigns in these countries. So how do we address those parts? How, how do, what institutions out beyond the summit can we use to address those, those challenges? And I'll start with you, Ms. Chavez, because I think you've talked about this. The, 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 how, what other institutions and measures can we use at the summit and post-summit to address things like disinformation, uh, the uh, financing of campaigns by criminal groups who have, you know, drug dealers or whatever that have millions of dollars in, that they can in, invest in some of these campaigns. How would how do we elevate that issue and, and make it not just a topic at the summit, but after the summit? Thank you for the question. I mean, you make an excellent point about 
democracy in general, um, that there are cases, increasing number of cases, not just in Latin America, but across the globe, where you have an, a leader that's democratically elected, and then we see that later in a very deliberate manner, um, dismantling democratic institutions, whether it be the autonomy of the courts. And we have examples, like as you allude to, in our own hemisphere where, where that's happening. Um, so one of the recommendations, I think, um, and, and this would be part of reinvigorating the OAS. Well, first of all, I, I really I, I have to express my gratitude, too, for the upholding the Inter-American Democratic Charter Act, um, which I think is an important statement um, about the importance of this charter. But one of the things I think the hemisphere could do a better job of is calling out these these deliberate assaults on particular institutions and not wait until, you know, there's this race to the bottom, not, not wait until it's just a shell of democracy is left. So I think that's one of the things is to look at, look at these steps that are taken along the way. And we're seeing this, for example, in, in El Salvador. Um, I think that when it comes, you know, another big issue in our hemisphere, and we see it in particular in Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela, is violations of human rights. Um, and I think that in the case of Venezuela, the UN's role in, with its mission to Venezuela, where it actually went in and then reported on crimes against humanity, um, was, is another way, I mean, that is not a hemispheric organization, it's the United Nations, but I think that, that, was, that is also incredibly important. Um, as far as disinformation is concerned, I think this is an, an, um, an issue for our own democracy as well. Um, I think, that, as I've said, I think that we need this, a more holistic strategy. This should be part of that strategy but it's my understanding that the administration is devoting resources to countering disinformation in the region, whether it be in the lead up to the Colombian elections, whether it be Russian disinformation in Mexico, um, because as you allude to, it is, it's a real problem, um, again, across the Americas, across the hemisphere. That, that um, can, I, can I go on and there's just, I'm not going to take much longer, but uh, Mr. Farnsworth, I wanted to just touch. So I'm, I'm thinking back to like the importance, the symbolic but also practical importance of who do you invite to a summit? Because a lot of times people say, you, they hear me talk about don't invite Cubans. They say, oh, he's just a guy from Miami, Cuban-American. You know, these guys are just, they just, you know, they want us to be stuck in the 1960s and it's all about blocking Cuba for political purposes. There's a practical implication to it. And I'll tell you, I'll, let me describe it. So in July of last year, you have basically non-apolitical people, right? I'm talking about like poets and artists and uh, songwriters and things of that nature that are like, okay, so we're in Cuba, we want to be able to express ourselves. And, and when they mean express themselves politically, their expressions are not necessarily things about like what, how government should be structured. They have complaints about like economic performance and opportunity or, you know, why aren't we allowed to, why, why do we have to run our songs and their lyrics through a government censor. So they protest against these sorts of things. 
Um, the government cracks down brutally, putting children, literally pulling children out of their homes and putting them in jail. In fact, the, the, the regime in Cuba just criminalized criticism of government officials, right? Not protests alone, criticism, just the act of criticizing them can wind up in jail. So all this is happening. So you're one of these people, you're standing up against that. I think for the first time in modern memory, you have a real amount of unity. You know, you have the Latin Grammys talking about this. You have people across the board sort of uniting behind this uh, from a, the perspective of being against it. And then you read or hear that potentially Cuba, that regime, just two weeks removed from criminalizing criticism, less than a year removed from a brutal crackdown at the street level, is gonna be invited to the summit. And I don't know if people fully understand how demoralizing that is, because the way the regime uses that against its opponents, and internally, among people internally that might be thinking, hey, you know, we're getting isolated, maybe it's gonna be time for a change once all the old dudes die off, uh, or sooner, you know, they, they, um, they start thinking to themselves, the, the, the regime says to them, you see, the world doesn't really care. At the end of the day, we have the power, they have to work through us, in the end, they're gonna cut a deal with us, and the evidence of it is they invited us to a summit. I would say the same thing about Maduro, and that's the argument Maduro is using around his inner circle. It's not that the inner circle in Venezuela thinks Maduro is, you know, uh, some great historic figure. It's that they're corrupt. They've made millions of dollars off that corruption, and right now they're better off with him there than without him. Uh, that may change in the future, but that's the and the argument he makes to them is, I'm the guy that can get this thing right again. I'm the one that America is now beginning to talk to and, the, and, and deal with. So I think that's the practical implications of that sort of thing. And by the way, it just completely demoralizes and, uh, and discredits those who are standing up and opposing those movements. And, and that's why I ask about these invitations, because I think these invit I would rather have a summit with 15 countries that are democracy than with 25 countries and five or six of them are just blatant uh, uh, anti-democratic regimes, because then it's not a summit of, of, of democracies. It's a summit of whoever's in power in these individual countries. I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about both the symbolic and practical um, impact it has when you elevate regimes like this to that status. Thank you, sir. I think your points are very well made and very important. Uh, and you know, the Summit of the Americas from the beginning, from its inception in Miami, it's been different. It has been intentionally a meeting of democratically elected leaders to the point where the hemisphere itself in Quebec City in 2001 uh, created the um, expectation that for all future summits, only democratically elected leaders would be included. And that expectation was actually memorialized in the Inter-American Democratic Charter that was signed in Lima, Peru on 9-11. Secretary Powell delayed his return to the United States as terrorists were attacking the United States to sign the Inter-American Democratic Charter because it was that important. And that's the basis of the decision here. It's not a US determination about you know, political this or that. The hemisphere itself decided that non-democratically elected leaders should not have access to this crown jewel of inter-American relations. There are other fora, there are other opportunities for discussion. Okay, fine, you can have that discussion in the context of other vehicles, but the Summit of the Americas has expressly been reserved for democratically elected leaders. And so at some level, this really isn't even a decision for the United States to make because it was a hemispheric decision. And by the way, that document was signed by no less than Hugo Chavez himself. So, you know, there's a lot of support here, or there was at least at the time. But I think your point about 
platforming dictators is critically important, particularly now. You've had the protests from July uh, in Cuba less than a year ago. You just had the passage of a draconian penal code uh, to then turn around and invite a representative of the Cuban regime to a democratic summit of other leaders, frankly, rewards that type of behavior, and your word demoralizes, I think, is appropriate in this context. It's also been interesting to me and, and concerning, frankly, that some countries in the region, some leaders in the region, have chosen to make this essentially a, a cause celebre issue in terms of their own participation. Uh, you know, it seems to me that coming out of COVID, where economies have been crashing, where recovery is not guaranteed, where Ukraine's wheat and, and agriculture products are not guaranteed for global markets, where energy prices are spiking, where debt increases, loads are increasing, which are now more difficult to service because of increasing, uh, you know, expense of the dollar, as well as rising U.S. interest rates. I mean, look, there are lots of things to be discussing at the Summit of the Americas. Is the most important hemispheric issue whether Nicolas Maduro, who is being under, who is being investigated by the International Court of Justice, should be included? To me, that's that's a non-issue. The answer is no. Let's talk about economic recovery. The answer is no. Let's find a way to create jobs in the region so that migrants aren't tempted to try to come to the United States because our economy is growing and regional economies are not growing. There's a whole discussion here waiting to be had, desperate to be had, with democratically elected leaders from the region, and yet the conversation has been hijacked by people who are trying to undermine the interests of the United States to promote their own interests in, in some cases in the region. That, to me, is incredibly disheartening because if you put that again, uh, against what we saw in Miami in 1994, it was a totally different scenario. In 1994, it was the United States was being pushed, actually, to commit to a free trade area of the Americas. The United States was being pushed in order to have an ambitious agenda. It was Venezuela that insisted that energy be a part of the Summit of the Americas agenda in 1994. Again, I was there, so I'm speaking from personal knowledge. But the way that the hemisphere has shifted in that discussion over the last generation has been something very important to see. If I, if I can extend just for another 30 seconds, I know that I'm talking way too much, I apologize. But the question about some of the tools that we have uh, to address these, I think, is also a critically important issue. And from my perspective, the United States has not done a very good job either using the tools that we have available to address democratic backsliding in the hemisphere, nor have we updated our toolbox. And let me explain. The toolbox has changed. Social media didn't exist in 1994. There was no Telesur in 1994. There was no Russia Today propagandizing in Spanish throughout the region in 1994. And yet the United States has not updated our toolbox. Why does Nicolas Maduro have access to Twitter with over 4 million followers, many of them probably bots? Sure. But that's a U.S. platform subject to U.S. laws. You know, these are the types of things I think we have to have hard conversations around. Because the ability to reach citizens and, and communities outside uh, of, of, uh, of the countries is, is, frankly, the ability to propagandize and spread an anti-democratic message and many times an anti-American message. I think we have to take a look at that. I think the OAS has traditionally had some troubles. But I do want to give a shout out to the Secretary General, Luis Almagro, who I believe is a real champion for democracy and has stood for democracy even when many of his member states have not uh, supported him in that effort. Uh, there are other things to say, but the point is I think you're, you're definitely on the right track. Thank you for the- Well, I'm, I'm going to wrap my, my portion of this is to say I, I think the point you've made about prioritization is really important, like given all the challenges the region is facing across the board, to have some of these folks sort of make this issue the primary issue that they're hinging the entire summit on, I think shows you a lot about 
the political interest behind some of this. I also think, by the way, that, I mean, th what many, Obrador is an example, hide behind is sort of a tradition in Mexican politics, particular to him as well, about non-interference, which is an easy thing to hide behind, except that you may say that your position is non-interference, but these countries are practically interfering in the affairs of other states, as an example, um, in Venezuela. They've created a migratory crisis through their policies that's been a huge burden on, on Colombia and other countries that have had to you know, face that wave of migration. Um, they've invited Iran into the hemisphere uh, in ways that I think are potentially destabilizing in the long term. They're openly in protecting, hosting and protecting uh, narco-trafficking groups that operate from Venezuelan territory to conduct attacks inside of the territory of Colombia. That's interference, I think. I had the pretty clear interference. Then there's these grotesque violations of democratic norms. I don't know how we could possibly ever argue that Nicaragua has to be here. In Nicaragua, everybody who ran for president against Ortega went to jail. Everybody. Not like half the people or a couple of the leading candidates. If you filed for, for, to run for president, you wound up in jail, incommunicado from your family. I mean, that's a pretty outrageous anti-democratic move is to say, I won an election because all my opponents are in jail because I put them there. That's what they've done. And that's the guy they're insisting that we invite and his crazy wife. Uh, and, and, and to be a part of this is probably the real power because he's you know, borderline incoherent at this point, but she's you know, even perhaps worse than he is and he's pretty bad. So um, the, the last question I had is, is something we haven't talked a lot about and it's not directly related to the summit, but I'd like to get both of your impressions on it and that is Colombia. Um, I think most of us remember a time, what, maybe 20, 22, 24 years ago, where there was real concern that Colombia was headed to failed state status. I mean, you had these uh, cartels that basically, in many cases, held the governments there hostage over extradition treaties, bombings, and things that were occurring. And I think one of the great successes of American engagement in the region is our engagement with Colombia, to the point where not only did Colombia become sort of a very stable place with its issues, like we have issues and everybody else has issues, but became a force multiplier. In essence, what the Colombians learned from us, they've been able to take to Honduras and, and train their forces as an example there on how to combat these irregular groups and so forth. And so I'm always concerned about if ever there was a change in Colombia, and I know they have a presidential election coming up and they'll have to make those decisions and a lot of this stuff that we do with them has been institutionalized, so you hope that that will survive political changes no matter what direction they take. But I was hoping to get the input of both of you of what would happen to our interests, not to mention to the stability of the region, if Colombia were to be lost to a direction that looks more like the instability we've seen, um, or, or worse, in places like Venezuela. What would that mean for democracy, for security, and for our national interests in the region. Rebecca served in the Pentagon, so I wanted to uh, <laughs> offer her the first opportunity, but uh, she says uh, she'll defer. Um, I think it would be, it's foundational. Look, the U.S. relationship with Colombia is strategic at this point. It's foundational to our ability to advance democratic and security interests throughout the hemisphere, not just in Colombia. Uh, and to have that undermined uh, would be, in my personal view, a real setback, not just for U.S. interests, but for democra uh, democracies in the region. Colombia has also been a huge partner in trying to alleviate the humanitarian crisis that's right next door engendered by Chavismo, right, in Venezuela. So if you have that uh, bulwark in some, in some way changed, 
uh, the humanitarian crisis coming out of Venezuela could, by orders of magnitude, get even worse. But I do think Colombia is a target. Colombia has been a target for a long time, and it's definitely a target now in terms of interests that are not aligned with the United States or are not aligned with democracy in the hemisphere. Because if you can get a country like Colombia to change path and to pursue uh, an anti-democratic path, and let me hasten to say, I'm not suggesting that what's going to come out of the elections will be anti-democratic. Who knows what's going to come out of the elections? I'm simply talking theoretically here. But this is a critically important country, and it, it's, it's important for the Colombian people themselves first and foremost, but it's a strategic partner of the United States. And were that direction to shift, then I do think you would have a real setback for the United States, but also for other countries that have clearly depended uh, on, uh, on that uh, force multiplier impact that you so clearly uh, discussed. The other issue I would raise clearly is uh, the fight against illegal narcotics, but I think my uh, colleague here would be better uh, positioned to discuss that. Thank you for the question and for also for just pointing out the importance of our bilateral relationship with, with Colombia. As Eric um, referenced, um, during my time at the Pentagon, Colombia was, was you know, our, our, our closest partner, defense partner in the region, I would say. Um, and it was a relationship that was incredibly important to, to both Colombia but also to the United States. Um, as far as the upcoming election goes, I think it's too early to say whether or not Colombia will be lost. Um, you know, it's possible that we will have, there will be a president who um, has a different set of policy priorities, we, but we do not know whether or not he's going to act in an undemocratic manner. Um, and this is just also to, just a reminder when we're thinking about the summit, um, you know, this isn't a summit of friends of the Americas. It's, I think we're right to be concerned about assaults on democracy, but I, I don't think that the fact that a country doesn't agree with us is necessarily, I mean, I don't think it, it is something that we should be weighing in on. Um, I would say that one of the core issues with Colombia, regardless who, who wins this next election, and I say this from someone with a DOD background, is that the response to, I mean, Colombia has undergone a, you know, a horrific decades of conflict and the military in Colombia has played a tremendous role. Without the military, the peace accord would not have been possible. But I think going forward in our relationship with Colombia, we need to be focusing more on the social recovery of the territory, not just the military recovery of the territory. And this is about establishing a state presence in the previously undergoverned parts of Colombia. Um, and I think that that is something we can work on no matter with Colombia, no matter who wins is the military has gone in, secure territory, but now we need the other Colombian institutions to go in and establish, establish a presence, show people and show the Colombians that they're here to, that they're there to stay. I think that is the only, only answer to the long-term um, conflict and instability in Colombia. And, and just as a point of clarification, I, I don't, by no means do I think that we should be excluding countries from the Summit of the Americas because they don't agree with us. Like, you didn't, if you didn't vote with us at the UN, I don't think that on whatever issue, Ukraine, that we should somehow exclude you from it. The argument I've made is if you're not a democracy, if you're an open, unapologetic dictatorship, 
that puts presidential candidates that run against a dictator in jail. Um, I don't think they should be invited to the Summit of the Americas, but not people that disagree with us. I'm not arguing Mexico shouldn't be invited, and they certainly disagree with us on a bunch of issues. And in the case of Colombia, I think what's happening now there is a case in point for why democracy is so important. So Petro's running, and he's the leading candidate in some of the polling, and I would venture to guess that we probably aren't going to agree with him on some issues. But you see his public rhetoric is moderated. I don't know how he'll govern. Why if it says his public rhetoric on some of these issues is moderated? Because he's trying to win an election. He's trying to get people to vote for him. And his policies will also have to take that into account if he wants to be reelected, which is the great thing about democracy, and that is that you have to, leaders have to measure their policies by what the electorate may or may not reward. And that's why democracies and democracy is so critical, because it does, as long as there's a democracy, Colombia's gonna be okay. They may elect someone we don't agree with, that we may not like every decision they make, but ultimately they'll have to govern themselves by the constraints of an electorate that'll punish them and their party. If we don't have democracy, they can do whatever they want. And oftentimes, that's what starts wars and creates crisis. And that, that really is the point that, that I wanted to drive. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And can I just say I'm in violent agree with, agreement with you and with Eric about the importance of uh, on the issue of invitations and participation. Um, I fully understand why Maduro, Ortega, and Diaz, Canel are not invited. Well, I guess we don't know for sure, but I'm assuming that they're not invited. Um, and just also a reminder that participation is a two-way street um, when it comes to attendance. Nicaragua has demonstrated that it doesn't want to be involved in hemispheric um, discussion. It showed that the day it expelled OAS from its, from its country. Um, so I do, I, I do agree on, on the issue of, of democracy. Let me do this. I want to talk to you, Mr. Farnsworth, about part of your testimony was about, well, both of you testified about the importance of economic recovery post-pandemic, and you raised an uh, interesting thought that I had had as well. Why are we, why is the administration being a little skittish about trade activities uh, in, the, in the region? I'm a pretty harsh critic of President Trump, but that makes me feel duty-bound to compliment Trump accomplishments, and there were some, and one of them was USMCA. That got an 89 to 10 vote in the Senate. NAFTA, after 20 years, of course, we should have learned how to make it better. And the USMCA negotiation made it better. That kind of a vote on a trade deal in the Senate is highly unusual. Um, why wouldn't we look at USMCA and then go back and look at the other trade agreements in the region and say, could we either incorporate those free trade agreements into a broader USMCA framework, or could we conform those trade agreements to the principles that we negotiated in USMCA? We have nations like Ecuador that want to join in the Colombian free trade agreement. Um, I, I think that as we're talking about economic development in the region, I think that this is a really important piece because one of the challenges we often have is some of the some of the neighbors in the region that have the most problems, so think of the Northern Triangle, who do we invest in there that we feel is a reliable partner for our investment dollars? Well, if we have American companies and others that are already there and that could hire even more people and generate even more economic activity if conditions were right, why wouldn't we focus on trade as a, uh, as a uh, accelerator of economic potential in the region. So could you go a little bit more into, you know, either expanded USMCA or conforming existing trade agreements to USMCA standards? And in particular, it may be that we want it, but the nations we're talking about, I know Ecuador would like it, 
maybe there isn't the appetite for it in the region. Do, do you see the appetite in the region for broader uh, trade agreements with higher standards? Love to have the opportunity, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. The short answer is yes. Uh, I would add Uruguay, uh, and certainly Brazil has uh, made uh, very clear its desire for closer trade relations with the United States. Evs have other countries, you mentioned Ecuador. But it goes back to my earlier comments in terms of the tools that we have available. At the end of the day, trade is a tool. If it's working well, we should do more of it. If it's not working well, we should figure out a way to make it work better. And that was the whole purpose of USMCA, which was a bipartisan success. And it seems to me that taking trade off the table, which in my view, successive US administrations have essentially done, uh, has been to take away the, the best incentive we have to bring countries into a more a closer relationship with the United States economically, certainly, to build the supply chains we're all talking about, but also to create the incentives for uh, things like good governance, anti-corruption, support for the environment, all the things that uh, we, we have talked about so many times in this chamber. The point being that if you take that off the table, the attraction of somebody like China who comes with a lot of money and no expectations or demands really feels a lot better. And, and there really isn't a, a choice to be made because there's only one, one uh, option, right? So we've taken ourselves out of the game. At the same time, we're trying to deal with historically high now migration flows to the United States. And again, part of that's just basic economics. You know, the US economy is doing well. The regional economies are not doing very well. People aren't, don't have jobs in their home countries. They're going to go where they can get jobs or where they think they can get jobs. So part of that answer has to be job creation in the home countries, particularly the Northern Triangle, particularly the countries where migration is coming uh, from the most. At the same time, if the private sector doesn't see the incentives or doesn't see the uh, attractive uh, environment to invest, to create jobs, to innovate, to do the things we would take for granted in the United States, then they're going to overlook the region. And that's precisely what's been happening, particularly, again, in the Northern Triangle and elsewhere. So using trade as a tool to help create those conditions that the private sector will find attractive to invest in, I think, has to be part of the discussion, as well as using trade as a tool to help incentivize uh, better relations with our neighbors, frankly, the countries in our own hemisphere. Now, we can do this in a creative way. We don't have to say, look, just because you're in a certain geographic time zone or zip code, you should have access to USMCA. No, we should use this as a way to incentivize better uh, economic and, 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 dem and democratic, uh, I don't want to use, well, uh, uh, practice, mm -hmm. right? Uh, to be able to say to a Costa Rica, a Panama, a Dominican Republic, yeah, you guys are pretty far along. Let's talk to you about accession to USMCA. Let's hold this in as, a, as, a, as an option for other countries in Central America, maybe a Honduras, a Guatemala, to say, okay, let's work with you to help you build the type of capacity and capability to be ready for USMCA, to welcome you in. Let's say to a Nicaragua, which is still part of CAFTA-DR, to say, look, we're not going to bring a non-democratic country into USMCA. So, you know, you're creating economic incentives for behavioral change. And that is something that we've gotten away from. We're just not even talking about it. Some of the Americas 
I believe in Los Angeles, this should be the core message that we're creating. We will work with countries economically and on democratic governance, but you got to work with us. Let's make this a real partnership. Let's get back to the idea that we're all in this together. Our future is linked to yours. We need to be working together. And let's get away from this, you know, mentality of somehow the United States is, you know, bad and this country is not. I mean, we, we're in this hemisphere. It's not going to change. Let's find a way to do that. But I do think we also have to recognize that there's some countries that just aren't going to want to participate, and that's okay in the trade agenda. And what, what the fatal flaw of previous summits has been is been that this has been agreement by consensus. So in other words, every country has to agree to do a free trade area of the Americas. Well, if a country in the Caribbean or uh, you know, Hugo Chavez in, in Venezuela or you know, the Mercosur countries don't want to do the free trade area of the Americas, well, then it blows apart, which it did in 2005 in Mar del Plata. The point being that that then that then prevented the United States and our democratic friends and partners to move forward in some way. Why, why should we let the recalcitrant countries determine the pace of change Absolutely. and connection? Absolutely. Why don't we find the partners in the region we can work with and build an agenda there that's so attractive that the ones who find themselves lagging will say, wait a minute, we need to be part of that because otherwise our own futures are in doubt. And that's where you create the positive incentives for countries to say it's better to be linked with North America and the United States because of what we get from them together than trying to figure out what the Chinese might be giving us. And by the way, they want half of our coastline and, and debt you know, uh, that we can't get out of. So I, that's, that's, a, that's a conversation I think the hemisphere is absolutely ready to have. The question is, are we ready to have it? And by all indications, we're not there yet. I well, I think, I think we, uh, on the committee, those of us who really care about this need to push the administration. I think starting with a Dominican Republic, Costa Rica, Panama, recognizing the announcement of this alliance would be a wise idea. Look, this has been a, a good hearing. Uh, obviously, Senator Ruby and I, Senator Cardin, are really interested in this. We didn't have good attendance, I'll just be blunt, you know, um, and that, that says something. Often when we have Western Hemisphere hearings, we don't. When I'm on SASC and we have hearings about Southcom, the attendance isn't so great. The resources that we provide to Southcom through the defense budget are minuscule. Um, and uh, it, it is a, stands in sharp contrast. If we were having a hearing about Ukraine or Taiwan, you know, we would, we would have really good attendance. And I think it's, a, it's kind of evidence of a proposition. I, in another context, the other day I, I recalled a, a line that was used by Pope Francis a few years ago as he was challenging parishes, but it could have been a challenge to people and certainly a challenge to political leaders. And he was saying that we needed to ser islas de misericordia en el medio de un mar de indiferencia, the islands of mercy in the middle of a sea of indifference. And the thing about that uh, formulation that I found really striking when I read it was he didn't counterpose mercy to evil, cruelty, or hatred. He counterposed it to indifference. And I, I just have felt long before I came to the Senate that indifference often characterizes the attitude of officialdom, not every member of officialdom, but it often characterizes the attitude of American officialdom to the Americas. And we'll get interested if there's a crisis. So, you know, we'll, we'll have a doctrine like the Monroe Doctrine that really wasn't about the Americas, it was about Europe. Or during the Cold War, we better get interested in the Americas because the Soviet Union is. Or if there's an immigration flood to the border, okay, we'll get interested for the moment. But in terms of like persistence and, 
and, and a framework that isn't just an episodic one-off based on the crisis du jour, I'm, I'm not sure we've ever really done that as a nation. Um, secretaries of state fly east and west all the time. They just don't fly north and south that much. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for colleagues, Senator Rubio and others, and I'm grateful for professionals who you've been doing this for a very long time because you see how important it is to our country that we do it and that we do it right. And I hope that we might have a, a, a new day uh, where we will take seriously this notion that we're all connected as Americans. Uh, I think Amerigo Vespucci was the biggest overachiever of all time. What did that guy do to get two continents named after him? But nevertheless, we're all Americans. We're all linked together culturally, in language, in family, in trade, in migration. There's so much upside for us. But if, if you compare the U.S. leadership that snapped together the coalition to battle against an illegal invasion of Ukraine, and you look at the influence that the U.S. had in helping snap that coalition together, and then you look at the influence we have or kind of don't really have with our nearest neighbors, you just see how much more work we have to do. And so for being dedicated to the work, I thank you. I thank you for the hearing. Uh, today, it's Thursday. I will keep the uh, record open until 5 o'clock tomorrow. If additional members have questions, I would encourage you, if there are, to answer them thoroughly and promptly. And with that, the hearing is adjourned.